Greetings. So good to see you. Um, familiar faces and new faces as well since we've been here last. Um, I'd like to have my wife bring you greetings as well, my lifelong partner and prayer warrior and support in many ways that I can't even list to you today. Uh, beautiful mother of our children and we now have grandchildren, to God be the glory. And those of you who have those, you know now why it's called grand parenting. It is truly grand. So my wife, Renita, if you would um, bring some greetings and pray for the, the uh, message as well. Um, we were here for about seven years, um, and this church drew us in during um, a difficult time in our ministry, and the love was just overwhelming. And so we are so grateful that you are here so robustly um, and such beautiful children. Uh, <laughs> it just blesses my heart. So um, thank you so much for having us um, and, and just for um, that, uh, this opportunity to fellowship again. So just good. I know Pastor Dave prayed, but Tim asked me to give a, a prayer, so I'd love to do it. If you'll bow your head with me. Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus thanking you and praising you for this glorious day, that we can enter your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. We thank you, Father God, for your word that is exalted above all things. And we thank you, O oh God, that you have come down, O oh Lord, and come to give your life for us, Lord, to rise again, Lord, that we, O oh God, may have fellowship with you, Father. So Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for hearts that are open and receiving. And we ask, Lord, that you would sow that word deep within our hearts, that, Lord, we might go forth from this place, make an impact in our world, see change for your glory. So, Father, we thank you for all the blessings you've poured out. And, Lord, we will be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, it was a, a treat to hear... I don't know how many times uh, the message is going to be preached today, I guess. Uh, it's something that the, the Lord is really, you know, um, when, when uh, Joseph, t uh, back in the days of uh, Egypt, when, when uh, he had the dreams and Pharaoh needed the interpretation, he said, you know, if God gives you a dream one time, he, he's, you know, he, he's suggesting but if you have a dream the second time, he really is trying to get the point across. <laughs> so today, um, I was, it was a treat to hear the message uh, to the children, and then we'll have an excerpt a little later from someone else who will, will share their interpretation as well. But um, I want to give a little bit of background, um, and we're going to go into the book of Kings. I'm not going to read the account, but I'm just going to give you an overview. In the book of uh, 2 Kings, it's found in chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. And you can look it up in, at your leisure. It was a, a story about King Ahaziah, and he had sustained an injury. So he sends some messengers to inquire of Beelzebub regarding his outcome. He wanted to know his future. How, how is this thing going to turn out? Well, God tells Elijah to intercept those messengers and give them his word, God's word, uh, for the king. Well, Ahaziah, he sends a captain and 50 men along with this command to Elijah. Come down 
implying by force if necessary. So Elijah calls down fire and consumes captain and 50 men. Round one, judgment. So there was a second attempt. So the king sends a second group of 50 and the captain. And the same thing happens. Round two, judgment. So the king sends a third group. However, this captain is much wiser. And his approach to the man of God, to the prophet, was not arrogantly, but rather, or demanding, but rather humbly beseeching. And Elijah is instructed by an angel to go down with this official to speak to King Ahaziah and not to be afraid. Round three, mercy. Now we're going to fast forward into the New Testament. That will lay the groundwork for the next phase of things. The good guys and the bad guys. So let's go to Luke chapter 9. I'll be taking my glasses on and off. I can see what's here, but not you. But please allow me. uh, Chapter 9, verses 51 through 54. And it came to pass, this is out of the New King James, and it came to pass when the time had come for him, being Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know the manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You know, James and John are certain that they have a biblical precedent when they suggest calling fire out of heaven to consume the Samaritans. I mean, after all, they had just rejected the rabbi. Jesus, just like they were annoying and and harassing Elijah, they rejected, straight out rejected you. So uh, what's the big deal? They're they're just Samaritans. And, And if you're not aware... In ancient Jewish culture, Samaritans weren't merely or passively disliked by the Jews. They were despised, they were loathed, they were abominated. They just did not like each other. Metaphorically, Gentiles to Jews were dogs. But Samaritans were the fleas on the dog. That's how bad it was between the Jews and the Samaritans. We're the good guys, Jesus. They're the bad guys in this scenario. Come on. Just give us the word and we'll call down fire and get rid of these vermin. It's no great loss. Remember, a couple chapters back, Jesus had sent out the 12 to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to preach the gospel. So these guys, they were pumped. They were fired up. We're operating in a prophetic anointing now. We've got the power of God flowing through us. So 
Let's just take care of business right here and right now. And Jesus says, guys, you've got it all wrong. No, we are not going to do that. <laughs> I did not come to destroy anyone. I've come to save. In verses 55 and 56, Jesus makes it very clear that every life matters to the Savior. And he came to destroy it, not to destroy, but to save. Oh, but that's just the prologue. That's just the setup. That's just the opener for the main events. Let's go to chapter 10. And verse, beginning with verse 25. We call this, or I see it as, a pesky plan. Enter the expert. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. We'll stop there for the moment, for the time being. So most translations use the word lawyer. Now when we think of lawyer, what comes to mind? What's another name for lawyer in our culture? An attorney, a counselor, advisor, right. According to BibleStudyTools.com, the role of these experts was threefold. It was to study and interpret the law of Moses, to instruct Hebrew youth in the law, and to make decisions upon questions of the law. So this guy, he, he came well-equipped, and, and he's presenting a test. He came well-equipped to test and to tempt and to try. The Greek word, for those of you who are into that, and, and I am, I love looking up the, the original words for things, ekpirazon, ekpirazon, and it literally means Give somebody the third degree to really try to push them into a corner to see how they will react, to see what their response is going to be. So this is what this guy was doing. And the master, as was his common strategy in such circumstances, he answers the question with a question. In verse 27, the lawyer cleverly replies with the Jewish Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And it, and it goes on to talk about how we serve him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And then he adds what Jesus has called the second greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself, which is found in Leviticus 19.18. Then in one breath, Jesus both commends and instructs him. In 21st century terms, basically the Son of God is saying, you got this. You don't need to ask me. You, you already know you're the expert of the law. Well, you don't need to, to ask me 
what's going on here. But the one conducting the test, the lawyer, he wasn't having it. He wasn't about to let this trial end with this rogue rabbi having gained the upper hand. So in an attempt to justify himself, he boldly and foolishly poses yet another inquiry. And that's verse 29. And he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? All right. Now we're coming to the main course. The perplexing and problematic parable. Remember the background. Remember how folks, how Jewish folks think of Samaritans. Samaritans think of the Jews. So here we have the characters. We're about to get the characters. Verse 30. And Jesus answered and said, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, there's another character, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. And we're going to stop there for a moment. So here we have the first characters in this story. Jesus does not state the race or nationality, and I am persuaded that that was intentional, of the man. He doesn't say it was a Jewish man. He doesn't say it was an Ethiopian man. He doesn't state what the nationality. He just says a man. So it could apply to anyone. It's no one in particular. It could be anybody. However, I'm also taking a liberty in thinking that the audience, especially the expert, would have assumed that the man was Jewish, primarily because he's coming from Jerusalem and going down to Jericho and not vice versa. So in their minds, that, that's what they were thinking. You know, we've all done that, haven't we? Have you ever heard the beginnings of a story in which the main characters aren't immediately described in detail, and then we presuppose all sorts of specifics, only later in the narrative to discover our assumptions of race, gender, physical traits, age, social standing, etc., were completely inaccurate. Oh, I know I've done that <laughs> more than once. You know what? I believe Jesus was saying by not stating that specifically, it shouldn't. Well, even better, it doesn't matter. It's a man. It's somebody. And that man found himself in a predicament. He was ambushed by robbers. Enter the second group of characters, the thieves, who stripped him and beat him mercilessly and ran off and left him for dead. These are the real villains. These are the real bad guys in the story. So Jesus continues. Along comes a priest. Ah, thought the hearers. The hero is on his way. The priest. And when he saw him, and perhaps Jesus paused before he continued with the story. 
he passed by on the other side. Okay, that's interesting. I'm sure the folks were saying, uh, that's okay. And I'm not going to elaborate all of the theological discussions there are about why and all of that. That will be addressed later. But then in verse 32, a Levite comes. Oh, wait, a Levite. This is a worker bee, so to speak. They were the priest's assistants. Surely he will have time to stop and assist the poor dying victim. The angel of mercy has arrived, but he too came, looked, and kept going on his way, passing by on the other side. All right. These first two may have happened to be on the same road and by accident come upon the scene of this heinous crime, but there is no doubt about this fact. They both deliberately maneuvered to the other side of the road once they had assessed the situation. Not interested in getting involved. At this point, I would imagine there must have been a bit of perplexity within the minds of the listeners as to where exactly Jesus was going with this story. They knew who the victim was, and they knew who the perpetrators were, and they thought surely either the priest or the Levite would save the day, but no. So where's the hero? Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Wait, 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 Jesus. We know we didn't hear you say what we thought you just said. Are you telling us a Samaritan is the hero in this story? You've got to be kidding. No, 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 no. That, that, that just crosses every grain in our religious body. Every grain in what we've been taught and told about Samaritans. There is nothing good. They're the fleas on the, remember Jesus? They're the fleas on the dog's back. How can you dare say it was a Samaritan that helped this person? And a priest and a Levite walked by, but it was a Samaritan. No, that can't be. Herein lies the conflict. What to do when your sworn enemy comes to your aid? or saves the life of one of your own while your kind passes by on the other side. That is a conflict indeed. That is a cultural and spiritual conflict. I'm telling you, Jesus was, I mean, yes, he, we, we don't diminish his being the son of God, but he was wisdom enveloped and wrapped in flesh. <laughs> he could bring a story and apply it in a way that 
you couldn't push back, because if you were to push back, it makes you look like an idiot. <laughs> because it, you may not agree with what he was saying, but you cannot morally dispute what he is saying. Let's bring it home a little bit. We have conflicts going on all over the world, all over the planet. There are conflicts going on that we don't even hear about in mainstream. But then there are those that we do hear about in mainstream. If we were to bring this up to 21st century terms, this would be like a Jewish person coming across a Palestinian or a Muslim who was in need of help, or vice versa, and being that kind heart, giving food and water, bandaging wounds that were inflicted upon either from their own or from another. That's the reality of this story today. If we were to update it into the 21st century, this is what we're talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. How does that affect our paradigm? Let's enter the caregivers. Because it wasn't just the Samaritan that helped. Let's continue in the story. Verse 35. And on the next day, when he departed, oh, I wanted to go back to 34. It says that he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal. Remember, this guy is beaten to the inches of his, within inches of his life. So he's bloody. There could be exposure of flesh and who knows what. But this Samaritan takes this person, this man, and puts him on and probably over his animal to get him to a place of safety. He didn't just pour in the oil and wine and wrap him up and say, okay, I got to be on my way. Because let me tell you, this Samaritan, he was on business. He wasn't just leisurely coming down this road. He was on business. Very evident. Because he leaves him at the inn, tells the innkeeper, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, whatever cost there is, when I come back, I will repay you. So he had a destination, just like the priest, just like the Levite, the Samaritan had a destination. So not only does that so-called foe administer first aid, but he also employs the help of another before he continues about his own business. And to top it all off, he promises to check back in on the situation at another time. So tell me, sir, which of the three was neighbor to the one who fell among thieves. Well, 
the answer was obvious. There was no other answer but the one who showed mercy. And not to get too long-winded about that word, that word, mercy, the Hebrew word is chassid. And chassid is kindness that is usually shown between family members. When someone in your family messes up, when someone in your family has a need, you take care of them, right? To the best of your ability. Because why? They're family. That is that word, hasid. It is overextended help if necessary. And that is what this word was, the, the Greek equivalent to that word, is when this Samaritan went above and beyond to help this stranger in this crisis. So we come now to practical piety. Piety can have negative connotations. But when it's practical, it's the real deal. Practical piety. The master gives the command in verse 37. After the lawyer tells him he who showed mercy on him was the neighbor, Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Go and do the same thing that this, who you consider to be an outcast of society, a group of people that are untouchables, the city which you would go 20 to 30 miles around just so you don't have to encounter them, this is the hero, the unexpected hero of this story. Do like that individual did. Whenever you find yourself facing someone in need of assistance or resources, go and do likewise. That spouse that's exhausted, yet there are tasks that are incomplete, go and do likewise. That next door neighbor that annoys you beyond belief is experiencing a life crisis. Go and do likewise. That mother that has a screaming kid in the grocery cart, struggling to get the groceries loaded up in the vehicle, go and do likewise. That homeless one, drunk, addicted, and aimless, yet in need of food and warmth, go and do likewise. Tomorrow, throughout our nation, we commemorate the life, of, the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And most everyone is familiar with his I Have a Dream address given during the March on Washington in 1963. 
delivered another message, less celebrated, but clearly as poignant. And interestingly, while I was preparing the sermon, I discovered this five-minute gem within his address. And uh, I'd like to share that with you now by way of YouTube. One day a man came to Jesus and he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite and the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. And finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man, because he had the capacity to project the eye into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we began to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 
15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. And you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by. And he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. He gave that speech on April 3rd, 1968 at Mason Temple Church of God in Christ, Memphis, Tennessee. Within 24 hours, Martin Luther King Jr. would be shot and killed. Let's bow our heads. Rest assured, going and doing likewise will cost us something. Perhaps not our physical life, but most certainly our resources, our time. And it will require empathy, sympathy. Many of us, our lives are so structured and, and so regulated and scheduled, but we encounter opportunities every single day. If only we look around us. For one, right here among us, I know there are some brothers that minister to the needy in downtown Burlington. And I want to repeat something that Dr. King said. They are not our proxy. They are not our representatives. Rather, they are our inroad. That's just one opportunity. All around us, more abound.
I just want to thank God that he has been working this into this vessel, into our family. And here we stand at the genesis of 2024. And in these coming days, let us seek fervently and wholeheartedly the face of God and ask his spirit to move us with compassion so that we don't pass by on the other side. God bless you.